Scottish Mortgage seeks out lateral thinkers like academics, authors and experts in the industry to shape our investment ideas. Not the usual suspects and narrow mindset of financial analysts and investment industry commentators. That way, we continue to build a portfolio that reflects real-world progress, not financial world noise. Scottish Mortgage is managed by Bailey Gifford. A key information document is available by visiting baileygifford.com. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hi everyone and welcome back to The Advice Show. I'm Zach, a reporter at New Model Advisor. And I'm Alicia, also a reporter at New Model Advisor. And today we're talking about how behavioural technology can help advice firms with consumer vulnerability. Alicia and I are joined today by Junaid Majava, a partner at Newton Europe, uh, to chat about how this technology can add value to the industry and to consumers, especially in the light of the new consumer duty rules. Uh, Junaid, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, just getting straight into it. Um, could you please talk to us about um, the Nova framework? Firstly, thank you for having us on the show today. So, yeah, to talk to you about Nova, so the, the first thing just to mention is it, it is around how do you design better customer journeys online and on mobiles for vulnerable customers, and by extension for all customers as well. The first thing to understand is that vulnerability isn't something that just impacts a minority of people. Almost half of us are vulnerable, and we're all vulnerable at times, um, and most of us bank or insure or get advice online, yet online journeys haven't been designed um, in a way that's fit for purpose for considering the complexity that we have as human beings. So what Nova and the approach that we've created, uh, what that's doing is actually using behavioral psychology to help design better journeys. That in a nutshell, is, is is what we've been doing here. Thank you. Yeah, that's really concise. Um, I mean, you know, we'll come on to behavioural psychology as well because that's really interesting. Um, but could you talk to us about, you know, advisors can often talk about defining vulnerability um, and, and a lot of them make efforts to define that and some of them, um, you know, list vulnerable customers, um, some make special efforts to take care of certain vulnerable customers. But could you talk through your approach to vulnerability in general and how IFAs can, by extension, best think about it? Yeah, so we talk about know your vulnerable customer, sort of as 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 a concept of how how you define what you have, and and there's been sort of efforts to get customers to identify and and sort of um, um, offer up what vulnerabilities they may hold and say that look, I've got this condition or other conditions that are taking place, and that has limited success rates. So when you look at um, um, or financial service organizations, how many people they've captured as being vulnerable, you'll tend to find it's a small percentage of people because people don't offer up their underlying conditions. So what we tend to do is say that actually you need to think about support needs and what support needs different vulnerability groups need. And the support needs are not just around um, a physical disability. It's not just around sort of someone being old and frail in some way and therefore needing access in, 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 in a certain manner. But it's actually much wider than that. It could be sort of financial literacy and whether someone is aware of um, the the terms and conditions and sort of an understanding of the of, of the transaction that they're about to take. And that could be someone who's much younger. A lot of the statistics show that younger people have a lot lower a lot lower financial literacy than the older generations. So they could be more susceptible to this. At the same time, it could be someone middle age very intelligent, no other sort of signs of vulnerability, but they may have just been made a widow or they may have just sort of separated from their partner and now are facing 
um, fan, a, a position where they're needing to make financial transactions and make decisions that they don't feel ready for. And they can be vulnerable at that time. So vulnerability is really a wide definition. So it's not more about identifying just the customers. It's about understanding the needs of the customers and then designing for those needs. Um, I think that it's really interesting you touching on the kind of permanent vulnerability and situational vulnerability. Do you have any idea what proportion of consumers have the, those kind of vulnerabilities? In, in terms of the permanent or the transient type? Um, either so, one. So transient's quite hard to say because it's it's sort of momentarily um, of the place. When we've done surveys with, with people before, we, we've found that actually in that moment, you'll find quite a high proportion have either the permanent or transient vulnerabilities. And we've even found statistics of like 70, 80% of the, of the surveyed population will have some type of vulnerability. But the, the wider statistics about the permanent vulnerabilities tend to be around the 50% the type mark, tend to be slightly lower than that. And it, it's around sort of 15 to 20% will be neurodiverse, about 15 to 20% will have mentally um, ill health, um, around 20% have physical vulnerabilities, around 15% of the UK have a low um, reading age, and low reading age I think is defined to like under 12 or so as well. So you find that when you add those up, there's lots of different types of vulnerabilities that you, that you ha have in place, but a lot of vulnerabilities cross over. So someone who has a neurodiverse condition may also have a mental health condition, which may also have a financially vulnerable condition. So that's where the statistics seem to show around half the population. But with transient, it could be anyone at any time. It could be that you've had your purse stolen, and at that point you're calling up the bank to say, I've had my purse stolen, I had all my valuables in there. At that point you could be really shook up and therefore not be able to make the right decisions that you, that you need to as well. So that, that affects us all. So if there are these transient vulnerabilities, as you called them, and these vulnerabilities can change over time, it could be any of us, how can you possibly identify them? Or are you saying that that shouldn't be the focus? I'm saying that shouldn't be the focus. I'm saying that there is a case of understanding the support needs of your customer base. You absolutely have to do that and understand the type of people that are engaging with you and, the, and, and are commonly engaging with you. But it's not about just identifying the individual that you're interacting with and is that individual vulnerable or, or, or not with underlying conditions. But... How are your processes set up? How's your um, sort of, if they're using online journeys, how are those online journeys set up that when they interact with them, they're fit for purpose for someone who might be vulnerable at the time as well? And that's things like, is, is the journey going to make them anxious? Is it going to make them worry about the decision that they're about to take? If they need further support, if they don't understand something, is there a possibility for them to be able to access the right information? If they um, sort of need to go and get some advice and pause that journey, can they do that? It's those type of considerations that you have to factor into your design. Absolutely. And, um, you know, in talking about these digital journeys, um, from a practical standpoint, how can these be better designed to include all customers, including vulnerable customers? You know, what are the practical um, obstacles that some customers face at the moment? So... Um, 
a, a couple of parts to your question there. So some of the practical obstacles that customers face right now, often there's aspects of language that's, uh, and the language that's used, which can be quite triggering for people, especially with like neurodiverse conditions. It can be sort of language that's used that's negative in a way, which then creates more anxiety. So if you're making a payment and there's a, a friction point, which is a good design thing to add in a friction point to say, are you being scammed? But the friction point will have a big red exclamation mark and say, stop, right? Um, and at that point, it'll get you to think, well, are you being scammed? And now that, with someone with certain types of neurodiverse conditions, may put them off from actually doing the transaction that they need to at that point. It's quite negative language that's used. Similar examples were things like insurance, uh, life insurance that someone might need to take out. And it's almost saying to someone, have you got your family sort of set up right? If you were to die, like what would happen to your family? And sort of triggering, again, anxiety and negative thoughts in someone. So there's aspects of how do you actually communicate to someone in a positive light, which allows them to transact in the way. There's aspects of terms and conditions and having them in a simple manner that someone can understand and works at different reading ages. But then there's also things like navigation that you can have in 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 a in in in, in a sort of um, online journey, which allows you to say, well, where have you got to on that journey? And therefore, if you if the phone rings and you happen to have Alzheimer's, when you come back, it tells you where you've got to in the journey and it tells you what you were doing. That's again another different type of sort of good design that you can build in. Um, we've we've looked at with with organizations things like having um sort of streaks on for good practices to positively reinforce certain behaviors that someone's happening to encourage them on that as well so there's numerous practices there's themes that come through the challenge really to come to it and the obstacle faced is there are lots of different types of vulnerabilities and there are lots of different things to consider and design teams, in my experience, are trying to design better, but what they're struggling with is having that ability to be able to consider the different uh, different elements and then prioritize the right actions they need to take. It's not a lack of intent that I'm often finding, but the ability to be able to navigate quite a complex uh, environment to make the right design choices. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll come on to the um, the specifics of that, because obviously, you know, with certain vulnerabilities, there will need to be certain very specific things that need to be included in that journey. But the overall thing I'm getting is what you said at the start about um, this being beneficial for all customers, because the things presumably that would make vulnerable customers disengage from a process, i.e. an alarming friction point that can cause stress and anxiety, can also just make all customers disengage. Absolutely. And it's you don't have to be vulnerable to then not understand some specific financial terms. Like, you know, um, and it, it might be an ISA that you're taking out and what the conditions for that mean. But if it's the first time that you're doing that, you may have a mortgage and you may be sort of um, you may have interacted with financial services organizations multiple times and feel quite comfortable, but actually find there's a new thing that you're now trying to engage with, which might be something like a stocks and shares ISA, as you get more affluent at this point, and you're in a, in a safe position. Yeah. If that's not clear, if it's not clearly described that this is what you're undertaking, these are the risks that you have in a way that allows you to it, but these are the benefits that you could have. Having some good practices to say this is a good way to engage with these things and making that clear to people, 
that can then create anxiety in anyone. You don't have to have neurodiverse conditions for that. So good design helps all customers from that. And it creates that engagement with your customer base where the trust element comes in as well of I'm I'm working with a trusted organization. They're not just trying to get me to trip over to, to make a transaction that I need to and I'm going to get stuck somewhere. But this is a conscious decision which is for my good and that it's going to help me um, in, in, in my own life as well. I think it's interesting what you talking about the friction points and, for example, the anxiety that those could cause, um, which I obviously can see and understand. But at the same time, a lot of those friction points are implemented for a specific reason and perhaps even to cause that anxiety to make people to take a step back and think. And could you give us some examples of in financial services specifically where those fr friction points are necessary and perhaps how they can be na navigated without having harmful effects, but also making people actually take the time to consider their choices more seriously. So, so firstly, just to be clear, I absolutely agree friction points are necessary. For too long, design has held this mentality of take away any friction points that you can. Mm -hmm. So the ability for your children to be able to buy something on Amazon by just a click, not requiring anything else is scary. There's no friction point included in that whatsoever. Um, and there is an aspect of actually friction points can be a good thing to get you to consider the decisions. And that payment consideration is, is absolutely, again, it's a good one. However, it's not very intelligent. Every time you try and pay someone new that you've not paid before, you get the same friction point. It's not really considering that actually you've just validated that this is a real account with a real person that's actually required on this. They're in the same country, or like you know, um, and, and and it's not sort of a payment that you're making overseas. Um, there, there's no sort of consideration for that. And then the language used is language which is alerting people without the consideration for people's anxieties. So it should get you to think, am I doing the right thing? And it should get you to think that actually, are there conditions here or things here that I should be sort of conscious of and how do I make that? But you can use the right language to tr trigger that, that, that information. Another good example where organizations are using friction points um, to, to drive better decision making are things like gambling controls. So um, uh, there's a problem like that you can have problem addictions at this point and no no bank is trying to stop people from gambling whatsoever but where people have problem addictions there's a case of actually well how do you support someone in that environment and you can have blocks that are applied that stop you from from gambling now you can then take that block off but what what organizations are doing is putting in friction points there to say well there'll be a specific amount of time before you can, um, before that block is removed. So if in the moment you try and remove that gambling block to then gamble, you can't use it straight away. The other aspect, what, what they're not often doing though, is in those moments, encouraging someone to keep that block on. Because that sort of, um, if someone has, a, to, to elaborate on this, if someone has ADHD, for example, they're more likely to be uh, have a, a, a problem gambling addiction. So in the population generally, it's about four or five percent. For people with ADHD, it goes up to about 20% of people of the population with ADHD have a problem gambling addictions. Now, they're also sort of encouraged by positive reinforcement. So using something where it says to them that you've had this block on and you've not gambled for this amount of time 
is a positive reinforcement and behavioral psychology that you can use to encourage the right behavior for that customer at the right time. So that's just another example of the right friction points, but really thinking about the psychology of the person and how how you encourage the right right behaviors. It's interesting you talking about um, about design having too much of a focus on the Amazon example, for example, one click, right? And there's no friction points, minimize friction points at all costs. Um, and we'll come on to, you know, the commercial benefits of using behavioral psychology um, for advice firms specifically, um, of which, you know, there are many. Um, but in terms of friction points and that sort of design battle, how do you see that as a battle between usability of service for, again, it's it's maybe vulnerable consumers aren't considered here, but the usability and um, the speed of service versus actually making sure you include the necessary friction points to cater for all consumers? I, I think it, you have to consider where you're applying it. For certain types of services, you want speed and you want to be able to get access as quickly as possible. So when you're trying to find a specific type of help, it's often tucked away somewhere that you can't find it. And that's a good sort of service point that you need to be able to get to. There are certain transactions that you do that you want to make in the right way. But there are certain other things that you're doing which are more complicated. And I think financial advisors, this is this is where it really comes in, which is you have transactions that people will be making where the terms and conditions and the construct of that product is not simple. So you, at that point, you need to consider how you take someone through that journey. What you could also do, though, is add in choice for a, for, a, for a customer as well. You can ask someone how confident they are about the transaction they're about to take and their understanding of the product. And if they're highly confident, you can make it possible for them to navigate through a journey much more quickly, giving them the terms and conditions, but a quick version of that journey. And therefore that choice exists. For people who therefore then say that they're less confident, you can give a more supported journey. Now, what that requires, though, that's more on the complicated end because you need your technology to be able to support you on that. So it's not necessarily something everyone can install straight away, but there are easy things that you can do around that where you can have support and help so that before someone starts a journey, you can then allow them to access that support so they're better informed better informed as they walk into that journey and start conducting that journey. So there are there are things you can do without being techn technologically too advanced as well. Um, I think I'd just like to turn a bit towards consumer duty, which is the thing that's on all of our listeners' minds at the moment. And when we spoke last week, you made a very good point that most individuals approaching financial services are being met with digital interfaces. So the digital journey is really essential to providing good service. And so in the light of consumer duty, and especially looking at consumer vulnerability, where do you see the greatest risks and opportunities in um, digital journeys at the moment in financial services? So I, I, I see them in, in, in a few different places, but it's a lot around, are you actually designing journeys which are fit for purpose for vulnerable people? So I think um, vulnerability is mentioned over 100 times in consumer duty. Um, and yet online journeys haven't really been considered for vulnerable people. So, and, and the mentality often has been a case of, well, that's a minority of customers, right? You know, and, and as we talked about before, it's not a minority of customers. But it's a minority of customers will design the online and the digital journey for the majority. It's then diminishing returns or they can use other channels. But a lot of people with vulnerability will prefer to use a digital channel. 
because of because of the actual vulnerability that they hold, it makes it easier for them to do that. So in that situation, are you actually designing in a way which is accessible for these people? There's also then some basic factors as well. You'll be surprised how many journeys that you go on that fail gateway access points, as, as we call them. So this is stuff like, does it work with a screen reader? Does it work in sort of the color ratio that you use that allows someone to actually be able to navigate that site properly as well? So they're not really being designed fit for purpose considering these vulnerabilities. Now, I don't think sort of, um, the expectation is there on advisors or banks or insurers to cover every single type of vulnerability. But to communicate clearly with people on those journeys, and there's a lot of communication that takes place on those journeys, to have actually considered the support needs people need, such as I am not highly financially literate and I need some more support through this. These are major points around consumer duty, which many digital journeys right now fail upon. Absolutely. Um, do you think that the regulation itself um, does a good job at addressing consumer vulnerability? Um, and do you think there are areas where um, this could be improved upon? Because, you know, you mentioned that digital journeys aren't in the place now where they address consumer vulnerability really to an adequate manner. Do you think the regulations will go some way to improving that? I, I think they will. Yeah, I think I think the sort of principle based approach makes sense. It's not it's sort of not having an approach which is sort of encouraging people just to follow certain rules and adhere to certain things, but it's actually getting them to think about the customers as well. And I think that's where the commercial benefit is for the financial services organization as well. You know, you've you've got to look at this to say, well actually by providing a better service to your customers that makes f commercial sense as well. It's not just the ethical thing to do. It's also somewhere where there's a commercial benefit for you. And I think the I think consumer duty, getting people to think from that principal manner about how you communicate, how you engage with your customers, is is encouraging towards a, towards the right area. Um, I think there's still some way to go from this as well, because there's a behavioral change, a mindset change that's required. And I don't think um, consumer duty necessarily fully addresses that to say, actually, this this is a case of stop treating vulnerability just as a minority. It's saying treat it more importantly and, and give it importance. But I don't think it fully hammers, hammers home that actually anyone can be vulnerable at, 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 at any point in time. But I think overall, when you look at the focus areas that are coming out from the regulator around communication, around sort of products which are just clearly not set up right, which can give people sort of, um, you know, a, a worse experience, a worse price compared to if they were more financially literate. I think those are those are right type of priority areas. Do you think it's a broader problem in financial services generally in terms of the language used that can alienate people? I, 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 I do think it is a, is a broader problem. Um, I don't think it's intentional, though. And, and I think that's a big sort of differentiator as well, which is sort of, it, we talk in certain languages and we then surround ourselves with other people who sp speak the same languages. And it's almost it's important for us to walk in the shoes of others and, and to understand their perspective. And I think we can then therefore be sort of alienated from wider society and think that the language that we're using is the language that wider society will use. So I think there's an important factor of actually getting close to closer to the people that you're designing for and understanding that, that, that group better to then be able to design better for them. So.
Definitely. I remember we did a uh, a documentary covering one of our stories and the journalist involved was told by the BBC several times, sorry, can you just repeat that in simpler and clearer language? Because I think you can easily get caught up in, you know, doing the profession every day, you can easily get caught up in using like language like for example in our profession advice firm well not everyone knows what a firm is um so business advice company financial advice company and i think it's very easy to get caught up in that journey uh, absolutely i'm a management consultant and we do it all the time so we we have to use we have to like remind ourselves to use different terms and it's hard right you know the the benefit of doing digital journeys though is that you don't have to design them just by yourselves right and it's not just in the moment the language that you use which can be quite challenging there are things that you can do to bring people into your design process how connected are you with charities how connected are you with organizations who can support in these things how much do you involve people with different vulnerabilities in your design process so it's not just all on an individual to try and design this perfect solution that considers everyone. It's how you collaborate in the actual process that can make a difference as well. So. Absolutely. And how have you found um, the process with um, with uh, within financial services in terms of you and the clients and the, the businesses that you're working with? Do you think they're quite that they're getting better in addressing topics of vulnerability? Absolutely. And I think, I think to be clear, financial service organisations have done a lot for vulnerability. Um, and I think that's often overlooked. You know, there's, um, when, when you look at the teams that have been set up, when you look at when, when you work with financial service organisations, and the intent that people have to design better for people with vulnerability, um, there's genuine sort of attempts at doing this better. It's just hard. That's, that's the case. It's not an easy thing to do. That's, that's the challenge. It's not that they're not paying any attention to it. They're not trying to make it better. They don't care about the customers. They want to do right things for the customer because they also understand by doing that, you have customers who are more confident with their money. You have customers who are more affluent and that's good for financial services organizations. So there's no sort of um, different incentive that's in place here, but it's just difficult. So I think the intent is absolutely there. And I find that when I work with financial service organizations, you get great engagement as well, because people want to do this, you know, and and the people who work there have their own stories, they may have children who are autistic, or they may have um, a relative who needs care for certain aspects, or they might be a carer for someone. Everyone has their own personal connections. And they're human beings as well, people who are working in these organizations. So they can really connect with it. And they're really passionate about making it better. It's, as I say, hard to navigate. And on that note as well, I mean, we've discussed this a bit about the what might seem like a trade-off between efficiency and adaptability. Um, how receptive have financial services been, services firms been to this behavioral psychology approach to the um, digital journey? And do you think it's something still very new or it's really been taken on board? I think it varies, but I think generally it's quite new. So I think there are certain good practices that have come in that come from behavioural psychology, and some organisations have adopted them, but it's still relatively new, and you still then get certain conflicts. And it's not just about the sort of design for vulnerability versus sort of the less friction points, having something that's quick that's taken place. It can sometimes be something as simple as brand. A lot of financial service organisations seem to have red in the brand, and that can then cause issues for people who are colorblind. So then you want to use that color in different buttons in different places. How do you best design for that? So there's an aspect of sort of 
actually, like there are conflicting elements that, that come through and how do you navigate through them? But I would say using behavioral psychology to this extent is relatively new in most of these organizations. I think there are other industries where they are, they are ahead and I'd, I'd count health as one of those because there's been a focus for a period of time of using the right sort of behavioral psychology, things like the theoretical domains framework to be able to better design for different vulnerable groups. So I would say financial services organizations on a whole are further behind, but that doesn't mean some of the good practices haven't come through. You will still get good journeys and good examples where there's a clear navigation telling you, right, this is this is where what you're going to be doing, telling you that these are the documents that you're going to need before you start doing that, that it's roughly going to take you 10 minutes to do that journey, and therefore you're set up for that. All these things that we, things that we can resonate with, the f- payment friction point before, despite the language, is there because there's a huge amount of fraud and scams that are taking place. It's to encourage people with the right behaviour. So there are lots of good practices, but it's not been do- done in the sophisticated, nuanced way on, as, as, a, as a whole. So. I think one last thing that we'd like to touch on on that is, I mean, you've described so many benefits that there would be for vulnerable customers, but of course there's also commercial benefits to financial services businesses improving their engagement and improving the customer journey. So could you walk through those a little bit and how that can improve relationships with customers and also new customers? Yeah, so... I, I think I think there's there's multiple type types of angles to this. One example that I use, um, which is not advisory firms, but sort of it, I think it's something that everyone can relate to. I was doing some webalongs with people with different types of vulnerability, uh, and they were buying insurance. And what was really interesting is you got them sort of on compare the market, and they're going through that that sort of journey and compare the market. And they get their quotes, and it's all absolutely fine. They're using it as intended, and it's designed quite well well for them. And then they get onto an insurer's website where they actually then have to make the purchase. And the anxiety levels with pe- for people would just shoot through the roof. And it wasn't just one individual. You see multiple individuals that was taking place. And there's a finality to it that actually I'm now about to make a transaction which has a consequence. They were faced with terms and conditions. They were first faced with legal terms. They were faced with websites which weren't designed necessarily in the best way and not the easiest to navigate to know what what to go through. And that anxiety level just shot through. So when you then ask them, what would you do in this position normally? It's like, well, I'd either go somewhere else and therefore you'd lose a customer or I'd phone. I'm looking, and, and many people would look for the phone number that they can then phone in. And it's then leading to a poor experience because they're often waiting for a long time to have the phone answered, but it adds cost to the financial service organization because that's volume on their cost centers as well. So they've designed these journeys to allow customers to serve themselves, but they're not being able to navigate through that journey and therefore they're creating volume in their call center. So that's one, one obvious area. There's an aspect of conversion rate, like the amount of fallouts that financial services organizations have, and they know their own statistics of how many people will be starting a journey and how many people actually finish that journey. And that conversion rate is relatively low. So to increase that conversion rate, even by a few percentage points, has a huge financial benefit for them because it's a growth that you're getting. And these are these are not new customers that you're trying to acquire. These are people who are already coming to you thinking about buying a service from you. So the acquisition cost is, is a lot lower for that specific type of customer as well. And then there's a loyalty factor. 
when you feel comfortable transacting with a specific type of organization and you feel like their journeys are designed well, there's an aspect of going back to it. When you have bad experiences, there's an aspect of then finding alternatives and looking for alternatives. So there's a huge amount of commercial uh, commercial benefits for, for that organization um, by designing better. And other industries, industries like tech, have done this much better. They've built their brands on this as well. Gone are the days where you get a new piece of technology and then you're going through an instruction manual trying to understand how to use that technology. Our expectation now is that that technology is designed in a way that we can use it um, straight away, opening it up, and it will help you navigate when required, and it will be easy to use. And those organizations who have done that well have built a great brand from them and had huge amounts of growth off the back of it. So the commercial wins are huge for financial services organizations. And it happens to also do the right thing for customers as well. And I think that's where the win-win really lies for, for these organizations. Well, that seems like a great note to end on. Um, Janae, thank you so much for coming in. Um, that was extremely fascinating. I'm sure enlightening for our listeners as well. So thank you very much, Janae. Uh, you've been listening to The Advice Show with myself, Zach Sharif, uh, and Alicia Hagopian. Uh, for any questions, please feel free to tweet us at New Model Advisor or email us at nmateam at citywire.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.